Tonight we're going to finish a discussion on a biblical worldview of vocation. Our work, our calling. Is that okay? All right. And, um, and then next week I'll let you know that Rudy is going to be speaking on our appetites and addictions. And when I say appetites, I'm thinking a Romans 16 context of appetites. I'm not thinking like, Mmm, stomach scrawling. I'm thinking like what we crave and desire, what our lust, the lust of the flesh, what, what they want to indulge in, and how these appetites, if, not, if they aren't for the Lord and aren't under submission to the Word of God and aren't being killed if they're sin, how they lead to addictions and how this can actually ruin us and what the culture is saying about it, what the Bible says about it, and practical things that we can do in our own life and in the life of culture. But tonight is vocation. Once again, so here's what I want you to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up these three boards again because we're going to use them this evening. But I want to just dedicate this time to the Lord. I want to plead with the Lord that He keeps our minds um, in tune with the Word of God, that we can make sense of what's being spoken tonight, that I can speak clearly, that we have maybe a greater understanding of how we ought to live in a world which is uh, we all work, man or woman, whether you get paid to do so or you don't, right? So we want to have the right biblical understanding and worldview of how we are to work and, uh, and specifically tonight where we're called as Christians to work. So bow your heads with me and I want you to plead with the Lord. All right? Not a wicked deep topic tonight. That's fine. But plead with the Lord to renew your thinking and your mind in the context of vocation, what God has called you to do and really what it means to live in God's will, and that he would really keep you away from distraction, away from boredom, and away from falling asleep tonight, okay? All right, bow your heads and pray. Father, you spoke in your word in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are to redeem the time or make the best use of the time because the days are evil. I pray that tonight your spirit would do just that, that you would take over this time, that you would speak from your word. I know many in here have these type of questions. God, what do you want me to do with my life? What kind of career? What kind of job? There might be many people who are 10, 15 years into a job, 20, 25, 30 years into a job, and are saying, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? And and maybe many people in this room don't see how their 9 to 5 job, Monday through Friday, has anything to do with the gospel and, and it feels meaningless or futile. And there are others who have clung to work as an idol and it's everything to them. It's their identity. And I just pray tonight that you would break down any kind of incorrect thinking and that you would allow us to see afresh from the word of God what your Bible says, what your word says about vocation, about the gospel, about the command you gave in Genesis before the fall to work. As image bearers, we pray, Lord, that Satan would have no influence in this time. We pray against the enemy. We pray against our flesh and are asking that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do. We submit to you this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with just a recap. Now, many of you weren't here last week. I'm not going to re-preach the message. I'm going to give bullet points because what we discussed last week is an important foundation for tonight, okay? And so we talk about a biblical worldview of work we see, first of all, that God is a working, creating God. You see this in Genesis chapter 1. He created, He spoke, things came to existence. In fact, Genesis says that He created man in part 
in his image because there is no one to work the ground. Genesis chapter 2 says, God saw there's no one to work the ground, so therefore he created man, placed him in the garden to work the ground. So we see here that work was a mandate given by God before the fall. Work is not evil. It's necessary, and it was given, commanded by God himself. So we see that the fall did not create work. Nor did the fall end work. And when I say the fall, I mean when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin came in the world. So sin entering the world did not create work. It did not end work. It simply made work difficult. Amen. I have the greatest job in the world, and it's difficult. <laughs> God is the perfect example we saw last week of how to work. I love this. This has been mind-blowing to me. Look at how God worked in creation. Each day, he worked or he created Then he reflected on his work. Then he saw that his work was good. He affirmed his work. And then at the end of the week, what did he do? He rested. Then we see that when God made man and woman, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That this be fruitful and multiply, we've talked about over and over again, is a gospel command both in the sense of discipleship and making more image bearers, but it's also a gospel command in the sense of work and vocation, and calling, and keeping the ground, and the earth, and uh, investing, and restoring the earth back to God. Because the word fruitful in Genesis means procreativity, or productivity. So it is a gospel command, not just for discipleship, but also to work. We also see that Jesus was a perfect example of someone who fulfilled his calling, even before he ever got to his ministry. Because Jesus was not sent to the earth as a 30-year-old man, was he? And by the way, he definitely could have been. God was able to do that, but he did not. He sent Jesus instead in the form of a baby. And Jesus grew up as a child. He sat under teaching. He was inquiring at the temple. And then we see his ministry doesn't begin as a teacher and a healer until the age of 30. And in Mark 6, when he walks into his hometown, once his ministry has begun, around the age of 30, he walks in and begins preaching and teaching. And all of a sudden, everybody who's known Jesus since he was a boy look at each other confused, going, why is Jesus teaching? Who is this guy? Isn't this the carpenter? And they knew him as a carpenter. So you see that before Jesus' ministry began, he was heavenly involved in a daily work. What many people would call a mundane, fruitless work. A futile, meaningless piece of work. How many carpenters today, I wonder, wish that they were doing something that had more meaning, and yet Jesus is the perfect example that in the same way, just as Tom Nelson said, Jesus honored his heavenly Father both in the carpenter's shop and on the cross. In the same way, in John chapter 17, when Jesus says to the Father, I have glorified you, I finished the work, the mission that you've sent me to do, He cannot be only referring to his ministry. He hadn't even gone to the cross at this point, so he hadn't fulfilled that yet. He's talking about his whole life. Meaning, God, when when he says, Father, I finished the work you've sent me to do. I'll fulfill the mission. You have been with me one. I've submitted to your will. He's also referring to the years in the carpentry shop. We also see that Adam, when he was in the garden, worked according to... Once the fall happened, the fall is the first example of this, he worked according to his own will and desires. But Jesus, rather, worked according to the will of his Father and found his desires fulfilled in just that. We looked at Psalm chapter 90, verse 16 through 17. 
which shows that God's work and glorious power ought to be revealed through the work of our hands. I'll say it again, that God's work and glorious power ought to be revealed through the work of our hands. Ephesians 4 says we ought to work honestly and for a specific reason, in order that we may share with those who are in need. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says that we are to grow in this grace of giving. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 11 says that those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. What a powerful verse. I'll say that again. That those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, that God honors the diligent farmer because it's the hardworking farmer that is the first to receive a share of the crops. How about Paul, who says in Philippians chapter 2 that we're to do all things without grumbling or questioning. We harped on this last week. That the workplace is one of the number one places where we complain, question, and grumble. And yet Jesus says that we're to do all things, Paul, through Paul, that we're to do all things, including our vocation, where we spend the bulk of our time without grumbling or complaining. We discussed that if you believe that God is sovereign, then you believe that God is sovereign over what you are doing today. He was in control. If he wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. If he wanted you doing something else, you'd be doing something else. And if he wants you at some point to do something else, he's going to open the door, pick you up, and move you where he wants you to be. Many of you here today have testimonies of that. We also discussed that we, we need not get confused about secondary things. Because we said the primary vocation is not being a school teacher, is not being a truck driver, is not being a landscape person, whatever, landscaper. landscaper, thank you, AJ, landscaper, right? Your primary vocation, biblically, is to be a child of God. The word vocation means calling. You are called, first and foremost, to be a successful image bearer of God. A man or a woman conformed to the image of Christ. This is your primary vocation. Next after that is, if you've seen the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, then love your neighbor as yourself. So the next, after being a child of God, our primary vocation is, if you are a spouse, to be a spouse, a godly spouse. Your second most important vocation. Then if you have a child, your third most important vocation is to be a parent. And then it's to be a brother or sister in Christ. But all of these things, a child of God first and foremost, spouse, or a son or a daughter, or a parent, a brother and sister in Christ, all of these things are way more important than your actual jobs. These are primary. Therefore, when we think about fulfilling God's calling in our life, we ought to be first and foremost concerned with those things. We discussed how at the end of your life, if you were a successful business owner, but you were a terrible father, spouse, and you were not an obedient child of God, your life was not a success. It was a waste. And yet many people are so concerned that their life will be a waste because their work means nothing. They don't realize if you be the the man of God or the woman of God he's called you to be, if you're a faithful spouse or faithful parent or a faithful brother and sister in Christ, you are a success story. Praise God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 through 24 says, Whatever you do, say whatever you do. Whatever you do, John Rainey, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And then we talk about there is no such thing in a believer's life as sacred and secular. 
There, there are no two compartments here. If you're a believer, every part of your life is in the sacred realm. There's not a gap between Sunday morning and Monday morning. What you do on Monday morning is crucial to who you are and your vocation as a child of God, as a saint. We discussed that the job of the pastorate or the mission field is no more sacred than the schoolroom or the golf course. So this is where I want to pick back up tonight. By the way, that's, that stuff right there is killer for me. Awesome. Shoot it up. I'm going, yes, Lord, I hear you. Killer. Changes the way I think about things. Good stuff. So this is where we want to pick up tonight. Last week, we rushed through these three boxes. And I was going crazy. So I want to return to these boxes, and I want to discuss several things. As we look at this, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 so I can give you some backup. Ephesians chapter 4. Here we are, starting afresh tonight. We'll begin in verse 1. We'll bring context into this. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now pause right here and notice that Paul has no category for church things and secular things. And whatever you do as a child of God, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And you do so, verse 2, with all humility, amen, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, here you go. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is Jesus. And this is our verse where I get these three boxes. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. So what we looked at is we see in chapter 4, verse 11, we see that God gives three, or Paul, God through Paul, gives three boxes. You might say, well, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and shepherds. That's five. No, it's three. And this is why. Apostles was an office that was given to specific men in the first century to begin the New Testament church. They went into all the earth 
making disciples of all nations. They were given this in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. You see, they were even given the languages, tongues of other nations, actual languages on earth. People heard them in their own tongue. People were converted, and they began to go out. But today, we see apostles as missionaries. So the so the office of apostle is closed, but we have a need to reach the uttermost parts of the earth still. We'll talk about it in a second. So we see that missionaries is essentially here. This chapter says it as evangelists, okay? We also then see here in the middle, and I know, Heather, that you are going crazy with the handwriting. Forgive it. So prophets, same type of thing. This was an Old Testament office. This is not the, it's not the same as the gift of prophecy that you see in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. This is different. This is the office that God gave to men who would go into cities, would proclaim the word of God, call people to repentance, etc. This office is closed. The closest thing we have today would be what we know as pastors or shepherds or teachers. So you see in chapter 4, verse 11, apostles and prophets, offices have closed. But evangelists or missionary, that's happening and necessary. Or a shepherd or teacher, it's one word in the Greek. Synonymous, it's an elder or a shepherd or a pastor. Shepherds, teachers, pastors, oh yes, needed today. And what does verse 11 say that these two offices are doing? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So now we have three boxes, and each are crucial to fulfilling the gospel. And we're going to talk then about what this has to do with our vocation, our calling, what you're doing. Because regardless of what you're doing, you have been called to fit into one of these gospel boxes. In fact, at the end of chapter 4, this passage in chapter 4, all the way in verse 16, it says that when each part, each member of the body, when each saint, when each member of the body is working, but not just working, is working what? Properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what I want to do tonight with these three boxes is I want to answer three questions, all right? I'm going to go one question at a time. So question number one, what is the role of each of these boxes in fulfilling the Great Commission? What is the role of missionaries in fulfilling the gospel, the Great Commission? What is the role of pastors? What is the role of the saints in fulfilling? All right, we'll begin with missionaries or evangelists. The evangelist and the missionary goes to the uttermost parts of the earth, Doing a number of things. Translating the word of God, preaching the gospel, planting churches, pleading with people of the gospel to return, repent from their sin, calling out false gods and bringing people to the light. In Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20, we see one of the greatest missional commands, which is actually just a New Testament command of be fruitful and multiply. When Jesus says to his disciples, to his apostles, he says, you know it, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that have commanded. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, you will say, this command is given to all of these boxes. And you're right. We are absolutely all part of that gospel command to make disciples of all nations. But here's the thing. We all do it in different ways. 
right? Not every single person in this room is going to go make a disciple of a nation in Africa right now or a nation of an unreached people group in South America. That's not practical. And if everybody was a missionary, where's the pastors and teachers? Where are the saints? How are we infiltrating the communities? We'll talk about all this in a second. So yes, while this is absolutely the Great Commission, a command given to all people, the part where it says to make disciples of all nations requires that there are men and women who go to these nations, these people groups, to preach the gospel. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is similar when it says, You will receive power to the apostles when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is another missional command. There are those who actually must go in order for this to happen. Romans 10, verse 13 through 15 is another crucial text for missions when it says, I I love it, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. How then will they call on him in whom they've not heard? Or in whom they've not believed? I'm sorry. How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, crucial to people calling on the name of the Lord is that people are sent to proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. Matthew 24, verse 14, the final verse I'll give in this context, it says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations And then the end will come. Now this is important because this tells us that the gospel cannot be fulfilled and the end will not come unless missionaries are sent to every tribe, tongue, nation, and race. You see that? So Revelation talks about how there will be a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, race that will join in the song, that will be gathered with the saints and represented in heaven. This is how God gets glory, by by redoing Babel. Bringing them all back in. And they will worship the Lord in one voice. This is going to be amazing. And here's what drives me crazy. This is why it drives me crazy when pastors preach constantly about rapture tomorrow. Rapture in a week. Or rapture in two weeks. Or this coming May is when it's going to happen. And all this hogwash because here's the thing and God can supernaturally do this and all of a sudden send by the means of the internet or just a massive flourishing of obedience from saints. But there are over a thousand unreached people groups. And and until someone from each of these people groups is saved, Matthew 24, 14 says the end will not come. How is the end going to come if there have not been believers brought from every tribe, tongue, nation, and race? Now this should be cause for us to be urgent with the gospel, right? And prayerful about the gospel. But it should cause for us to also be submissive to God's word and understand what it says and doesn't say. So this is what missionaries do to fulfill the Great Commission. What about pastors and shepherds? James chapter 5, verse 14 says that those who are sick should call for the elders of the church. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and Titus 1, verse 9 says that elders, and just so you know, I don't want to assume here, In Scripture, overseer, shepherd, teacher, pastor, 
all synonymous. There are times where teaching is not synonymous. From the context of an overseer or an elder, it is synonymous. So when you hear overseer or elder, it means biblically pastor. It's a shepherd, okay? So these three pastors I just mentioned, it says that elders are the household stewards. That they are the leaders, instructors, and teachers in the local church. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Peter directly charges elders to pastor and oversee the local congregation. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit placed them in the church as overseers to pastor the church of God. In Acts 20, verse 28 and 31, Paul exhorts elders to guard the church from false teachers and to be alert to the constant threat of false doctrine. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul reminds elders to work hard, to help the needy, to be generous like the Lord Jesus Christ. Alexander Strzok has a, has a, a book on biblical eldership, and, and he says that elders lead the church, they teach and preach the word, they protect the church from false teachers, they exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, they visit the sick and pray, and they judge doctrinal issues in biblical terminology Elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. This is how they fulfill the gospel. And as they're doing this, the saints in which they are overseeing and leading and teaching and discipling are the ones who are going into the workplace and the ones who are going into the unreached people groups. Therefore, they are a massive part of fulfilling the gospel. What about the saints? What do the saints do in fulfilling the Great Commission? Well, according to Ephesians 4, Verse 12, which we just read, saints are to do the work of the ministry. I, I, we're going to talk about what that means in a second. I love that. What does that mean, that you're to do the work of the ministry? Well, we see that they are to build up the body of Christ, as Romans 4, verse 16 says. Romans 12 shows us that they are to use their gifts in the church and among the saints. 2 Corinthians 5 says that saints are ministers of reconciliation. They are ambassadors for Christ. That God is making his appeal through the saints to the world. Whoa! 2 Corinthians 3 says that these saints are a fragrance of life and death to the world. Hebrews 3 says that saints are to exhort and encourage one another as long as it is called today. Hebrews 10 says that saints are not to neglect meeting together, but to stir one another up to good works and to share it in each other's afflictions and sufferings. Ephesians tells us that saints are to work hard in order to have something to give to brothers who are in need. Jesus tells saints that they are the light of the world and salt of the earth and to work in such a way that the world sees your good works and glorifies your God in heaven. Ephesians chapter 5 tells saints to expose the deeds of darkness in this world. Ephesians 4 says that saints are to speak the truth in love in this world. The gospel demands that we have laborers, saints, in every sphere of this world, plumbing, teaching, engineering, politics, law enforcement, etc., in order that we may make and be ambassadors for Christ and be engaged in the image-bearing work of restoring this earth. If we don't have saints being discipled and trained in the context of a congregation and a fellowship in a body of believers to go out and make disciples in their communities, how will the gospel spread in the cities and communities we've been called to. So you see, the saints' work is crucial in the Great Commission. Now the second question we're going to ask tonight. Second of three. How does each of these boxes contribute to the needs of the other boxes? 
Because just as they're all crucial, God has made it so amazing. Because if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, The hand can't say to the foot, I have no need for you. The eye can't say to the kneecap. And the armpit can't say to the left pinky toe. And the eyebrow can't say to the chin. Right? It doesn't sell those things. You get the point. It can't say, I have no need for you. Meaning that all three of these boxes desperately need the other boxes in order to fulfill their calling in the Great Commission. This is amazing. This is how God works. What a, what a way to humble us all. And this is why I talk about there's no hierarchy in vocations. The, that, that we, we talked last week, that's what culture says. Culture says there are more important jobs than others. The Bible says there is no one person who can say, I don't need this person. And in a way of keeping us humble, like Romans 12 says, that we ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to in the context of the gift we've been given. We need to look at this and say, what a humbling way to say, I desperately need my brothers and sisters to fulfill what God has called me to do. So how do these boxes contribute to the needs of the other boxes? We'll look at the missionaries first. The missionaries go to unreached people groups, communities, nations, tribes, etc., to preach the gospel and plant churches. What this does is this extends the family of the saints to unreached places and creates new saints and new pastors to carry out their callings. It enlarges the body. Enlarges the body. Missions work produces more saints and more pastors and more missionaries that will now in turn be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he longs to go to Rome so that both he and the saints would be strengthened and mutually encouraged by each other's gifts and each other's faith. That's a beautiful example of how they're dependent. That the missionary needs to go and be with the saints to be encouraged and strengthened by their gifts and their faith, and the saints need that from the missionary to be mutually encouraged and strengthened and built up by their gifts and their faith. You also see this in Romans chapter 15, verse 25, when Paul also says that his missionary journey is bringing aid to the saints. And this is happening via gifts, via teaching, via encouragement. What about pastors and shepherds? And there's more here. We're going to wait till we get the saints. And there's going to be more here too, but we're going to wait till we get the saints because the saints are actually the crucial part that is the glue for all of it. How, how does a pastor contribute to the needs of saints and to missionaries? Well, a pastor or a shepherd, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, must devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. He's to do this to save himself and his hearers. Remember, a shepherd protects his flock and teaches them the word. So automatically right there, you have how is it pouring in? It's teaching saints. It's protecting saints. And, and this equips and trains the saints, Ephesians 4.12, for the work of the ministry. A pastor is given an extended period of time, more so than the saints have. And yes, biblically, a pastor should be spending more time than a saint. Not, and I want to be careful here. Not, not that a saint can't you know, be killing it who has the ability. And a pastor is a saint. I've just talked to you. There's no hierarchy. But if you look at the biblical commands and acts, you call the deacons so the pastor aren't carried away with the meeting the needs of the people physically so that they can go away and pray and read and teach. And Paul says to Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. 
Do not neglect this gift. A pastor is called specifically so that he can spend the bulk of his time reading and teaching and praying. He better be doing that. He does this. He studies and prays in order that God may speak through him to teach the flock. He prays for the flock. A pastor's vocation, first and foremost, is to spend time with the Lord. And then based on his time with the Lord, he teaches. And what does he teach? Everything pertaining to life and godliness. (laughs) He teaches discipleship and missions and vocation and salvation and sanctification. He provides biblical counseling. He teaches what... The Bible says about marriage. He teaches what the Bible says about entertainment. He, what we do. This is what a pastor is to do. Abraham, and I, I read this uh, last week, but it's worth reading again today. Abraham Kuyper says that Christians, this is awesome when you look at the role of a pastor. He says that Christians are engaged in a battle with the world. And the gathered church, like a Sunday morning or even like a tonight, the gathered church is the heavenly anticipatory eschatological, which is just end time, army tent of the Lord. This, this, is like, this is like the tent of the soldiers who are anticipating what it's going to be like to come. We come together, this, this gathered church. And what happens is that pastors, he says, are field medics. He says these field medics strengthen the troops. They treat your wounds after battle. They feed the soldiers with God's word, and then they send them back out to take every thought captive for Christ to go do the work of the ministry. I love that. That's a great way of looking at the role of pastor and how he's pouring into these other boxes. These are essential and needed and required, and they prepare us to go reach the world. What about the saints? How do the saints contribute to the needs of of others? Saints, hear this, because I would probably plan on the fact that in here there will be some missionaries and in here there will be some pastors. That, that would be my thought. Or, and maybe not a vocational pastor as far as getting paid, but maybe an elder. First Timothy chapter 5, we'll talk about in a second, says that there are both. There are elders that don't get paid. There are elders who excel in preaching and teaching that do get paid, and it should happen this way. But my guess would be that in here we have missionaries and pastors. But the majority of you will probably find yourself in the saint box for the rest of your life. So I want you to hear what I'm about to say of how you contribute to the needs of others in your role, okay? This is awesome. Saints reach places that pastors and missionaries never will. Ever. The bulk of my job is dealing either with Christians or people who are on the verge of maybe being a Christian or maybe people who just want to come and they hate Christians. My, really, my only opportunity to be with non-believers outside of if they come to a home group or intentional, because, uh, you know, Charlotte's too young to, like, have friends that she, like, knows in the community. Lucas is her friend, right? And Connor and Connell, wherever Tyler is, okay. But you get what I'm saying. I don't, I'm not, like, in a sports realm right now. My neighbors, some of them are lost. I talk to my neighbors, but I don't have a, I go to work with Ellen, you see what I'm saying? I don't, I, I'm preaching the gospel to Ellen. She's preaching the gospel to me in a different way. Right? I'm not, I'm not reaching the world with Ellen. Right? So I, I'm in this little bubble. My evangelistic opportunities are like a Planned Parenthood or if we have an opportunity where we're going to the streets and we're preaching the gospel, having conversations, or if I'm intentional about my conversations in the grocery store. But saints, you, you go places that I never will. 
You're able to go into arenas that I can't go into. Uh, You have opportunities that pastors and missionaries don't. Think about it this way. Caesar Rodney School District will probably most definitely not allow me to come teach things of God. But it will allow a saint to be a teacher. A, a, A person on a Sunday morning, a saint in the church who has gone to school for teaching. Heather's an example in the school district of somebody who can teach and be a light in her classroom and for other teachers. I don't have the ability to go in that school district and do it. She does. This can go into any other arena. Or think about this, because this principle is true in every area of life. But how about unreached people groups? In the 1041, of the most unreached area in the world, most of these places, it's illegal to go as a pastor or a missionary. You can't go there. But they are chomping at the bit for businessmen and businesswomen to come and start up businesses there. So one of the best ways to reach these unreached people groups where it's illegal to be a pastor or a missionary, you go as a saint with a daily vocation that's contributing to society and the economy, and you infiltrate a nation that way. A pastor and a missionary can't do that. And you may say, that's kind of acting as a pastor and a missionary. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that saints are to pray to the Lord of the harvest. You want to know how else you contribute? The saints are to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are what? Few. In Ephesians 6, we're told that saints are to pray and make supplication for the rest of the saints. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 24 through 25, Paul instructs the church to examine prospective elders as to their qualifications. The saints are the ones who are supposed to examine who is qualified to be a pastor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul exhorts the elders to live at peace with the saints, the congregation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 to 13, Paul instructs the church to acknowledge, love, and live at peace with its elders. In Acts, deacons which are saints that have now roles in the church, were assigned so that the apostles could focus on reading and praying and teaching. I mentioned this before, and now you'll see it. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, we see that the church should pay the pastor to provide him and his family so that he can attend to these things to build up the body. So the saint's tithe is what is allowing for the pastor to be paid and take care of his family so that he can in turn teach and disciple and prepare the saints for the work of the ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 shows that the saints should grow in the grace of giving and tithe so that pastors can be prepared and teach and missionaries can go and reach unreached people groups. You see this work in the heart of this work in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when Paul is awaiting the gift promised to him and he encourages the church to give and he says this in chapter 9. He says this to the saints. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How many times have you heard God loves a cheerful giver? You heard it in church a bunch of times? It's prayed for offerings, I've prayed for offerings, right? It's a typical, you know, giving Sunday, you mentioned give the cheerful heart. Did you know that the context of that verse is Paul encouraging the saints to give cheerfully so that the missionaries can go reach the world with the gospel? The cheerful giving is coming so that the saints can send. How awesome is that? 
Most Christians are going, I've got to give 10% of my paycheck just so the building can have heat and so we can buy new toys and what is my money going to? And you're obsessed with blah, 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 and you're belligerent givers. You don't realize that the gospel command given to saints to tithe is so that you can be pouring into pastors and missionaries so that they can fulfill the calling that has been placed on their life. And part of your calling to fulfill that God has given you is to be a giver. If, if, if the saints don't give, the pastors can't teach and the missionaries can't go. He goes on and says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Then he says this in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, by their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you. In other words, it's like saying, I've been saved. I desperately want other people to be saved. And a way that I can do that is by tithing and giving generously as a means for God to send people to save people that I can never reach because just as a pastor and missionary can never reach somebody in the school district like Heather can, you know what Heather's not going to be able to do? She's not doing what Tyler and Devin are doing overseas right now. You desperately need each other. And so through the means of Tyler and Devin and a pastor, Heather is now equipped to do the work of the ministry in Caesar Rodney School District and her giving ties and gifts and using her gifts to strengthen the body is now allowing for Pastor Jeff and Pastor Dave and a Tyler and Devin to go. It's a beautiful, humbling look at how God is working all of these areas and callings together. But perhaps one of the greatest chapters on how the saints contribute to these other boxes is found in Romans chapter 15. I want you to go to Romans chapter 15 with me. Romans chapter 15, verse 22. We're going to pick up in verse 22. You're getting ready to read this cornerstone if you follow along in your read the Bible in a year plan. Verse 22. This is the reason, Paul says this, it's his plan to visit Rome. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, he's talking about how he's gone to all these other places and preached the gospel, which is why he hasn't been able to come here. But he says, now that I've finished the work in these regions... Since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Look at me really quick. Spain, in Paul's eyes, was the uttermost parts of the earth. It was the only unreached place left for him to go. So he's going to stop through Rome, and he's going to go preach the gospel in Spain. Okay? So verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, Paul's missionary, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once, I've, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is so cool. So Paul, he had been to Macedonia and Achaia. The saints there give him a gift to give to the saints in Jerusalem. 
He's going to Jerusalem. He's dropping off the, off the gifts and the saints there. He's encouraging them, mutually encouraged. And now he's going to stop through Rome. And Rome, he's got gifts for them. And now Rome is going to contribute together and send Paul on his way to Spain. Talk about a family. I dig it. Read on. Verse 27. For they were pleased to do it. <laughs> it's like... It's, you know, I do love this. That, you know, you hear stories of like some churches, you know, whatever, it can be gimmicky sometimes, but I actually like the concept. Time for the offering and they all cheer. <laughs> I love that. That's the way it should be. I really do believe that. Like, they were pleased to do it. They are pleased to give these gifts. And indeed, they owe it to them. They owe it to them. We're called to do so. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Let me read that again. Because we think that we're just simply called to pray for the spiritual things and uplift you. And amen, 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 amen. There's, there's people who think it's only spiritual. There's people who think it's only material. But Paul shows both here. They're pleased to do it. They owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain how? By way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I don't need to expound on that. We just were able to do so. What we see here is that each of these boxes is dependent on the other to succeed and fulfill the gospel. God created it this way. The saints are dependent on the protection and teaching and leading of the pastors. They're dependent on missionaries being sent to unreached places. But the pastors and missionaries are dependent on the saints, not just financially, but also for them to use their gifts in the congregation to strengthen and do the work of the ministry. And most importantly, for the saints to reach their communities through their vocations, hobbies, and neighborhoods. Ephesians 4.16 it says that in order for the body to build itself up in love, this box must be working properly, this box must be working properly, and this box must be working properly. Now, there's one final question left to ask. One final question. Question number three. You ready? How do I know where I'm called? So how do I know which box I'm called. And if you're called to the box of saints, how do I know where I'm called there? My lawn landscaper. Am I a doctor? Am I a teacher? For those of you last week, you remember this. My radio host. Am I a dancer? What, what am I? Ephesians chapter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 1 Timothy, Titus, and many other passages all show us that not everyone has the same gift or calling. In fact, as we've seen the last hour, if everyone did, the gospel would not be fulfilled. So how do you know where you've been called or what is God's will for your life and vocation? Now, I use this term God's will for your vocation on purpose. I can't go into a major, major discussion of the will of God, or rather what we see biblically as different wills of God. I don't want that to confuse you. And no, I'm not speaking heresy, okay? I'll give you one example here in a second. But there are, in essence, different wills of God. So I want to explain a couple things about his will first. Number one is that not all times you see the word will in Scripture, is it referring to the same thing, okay? When it's talking about God's will, I'll give you an example. 
we find in Scripture God's decreed will, meaning His autonomous, predestined, unfaltering command. He speaks, it happens, nothing can thwart it, right? There's there's nothing that can change His decreed will. But what you also find in Scripture, God's preceptive will is what R.C. Sproul calls it. His preceptive will. This is found in His law. Think about it. The precepts, the statutes, the commandments. It's God's will that we not break His commandments. And yet what happens? We break His commandments. Right? And so you have what happens here as God's preceptive will, God's decreed will. So when we ask what is God's will for my life, sometimes that can be a confused uh, or a confusing question if you don't understand really what you're asking and somebody will need to dig into what are you asking. Well, are you asking what is God's will for your life in regard to salvation? Well, that, Lord willing, if you are going to be saved, that your eyes would be opened, that you would confess Christ as Lord, that you would be an image bearer, that you would be fruitful, multiply. Uh, what else do you mean? Okay, do you, well, no, what is God's will for my life? Okay, do you mean like you should keep in step with the Spirit? That you should obey the word of God, that you should abide in him, that you should uh, hide God's word in your heart. Yeah, I get that, but what's God's will? Well, pause. Because what we just said is the most important will for your life. In fact, if, if your focus is on fulfilling this, this should be fine. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean it may, it may not be what you think it's going to be or supposed to be. But this is primary. So, Really, when people are saying, what's God's will for my life? What they're typically asking is, no, what am I supposed to do for a living? Who am I supposed to marry? Um, you know, where am I supposed to live, etc. Like, what is that? The culture life, what does that look like? But you've got to pause and say, first and foremost, your primary vocation, remember, is a child of God. God's will for your life, if you're a believer, is to keep in step with the Spirit and walk in a manner worthy of the calling which He's called you. Secondly, what is God's will for your life if you're a believer and you're doing that? Be a faithful spouse. Be a faithful child. Be a faithful parent. Be a faithful saint or pastor or missionary contributing to the works of the gospel. But you may say, okay, but I'm a saint. I understand that. I'm seeking to do that. But now practically, what does that look like for my Monday through Friday? What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my vocation? What is God's will for my marriage? Well, that's what I want to talk about here. So I want to start with the missionary evangelist again. How do you know if you're called to be a missionary evangelist? Now, I'm going to pause. I'm speaking for an hour. I know, Mike, I'm going to, Mike told me last week, this is not a Sunday morning, okay? I would have to shut, I would have had to shut up 20 minutes ago if it was a Sunday morning. If you need to go, you're fine, you don't hurt my feelings. I am almost done, but I'm going to finish the message for anybody who can stay, Okay? All right, Mike, because Mike told me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can leave, dude. You can leave. Bye, Terry. Love you guys. All right, seriously, if you need to go, I understand. But I'm, I'm going to finish just this last question, okay? Let's start with missionaries evangelists. I know some of you got kids. Seriously, okay? So, Yorks, if you need to go. Every time we see somebody called to this office in Scripture, how do you know if God has called this office? In Scripture, we typically seen some massive transformation, like a Saul on a Damascus road, or when Jesus goes to his disciples, right, and he calls them. But after this, the apostles enlisted and trained others, such as Barnabas, Tychicus, Epaphras, all who fell in the missionary field. So how did these men know that they were called, and how do you know if you're being called to the mission field? 
First, we see there's a necessity for a desire. You have to have a desire to go wherever God has called. That seems simplistic. But if if you don't have a desire, pray and make sure that your heart isn't resisting maybe something that God is trying to give you a desire, that you don't have a callous heart. But you should have a desire, a desire to reach unreached people groups. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 20, we see a perfect example of how God weeded out those who desired to join him on mission, but didn't really have the desire. They had wrong desires. It says this in verse 18, Matthew chapter 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe, so a religious Jewish man, came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds awesome. Jesus, you got a guy who wants to join the mission team, man. Sign him up. Jesus looks at him and says, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you read the stories of missionaries throughout the generations, what you will find is most likely a life of affliction, a lack of earthly comfort, danger, toil, disease, hardship, and you'll also find an incredible amount of spirit-filled perseverance, strength, proclamation, peace, joy, and all the other fruits of the Spirit because it's God empowering them. The call to be a missionary requires also the ability to teach and preach the gospel. It requires you to be able to teach and preach the gospel. It requires a willingness to leave behind your world and die if necessary. The call to being a missionary is biblically affirmed by elders in local congregations and provision is made by the saints. So think of it, think of, think of it this way. If you lack the ability to teach or preach, you've not been called to the mission field. I don't, I'm not talking to him as a pastor. I mean, because look at what does the gospel command say to the, to the apostles? Go make disciples of all nations. How do you do this? Baptizing them, teaching them all. Teach them to obey all that God has commanded. If a missionary doesn't know how to teach or how to teach people to obey, he can't be a missionary. doesn't mean you have to be the best teacher, but it means you have to be able to teach the word of God. If you, uh, you cannot make disciples if you cannot teach. If you are not sent by a church or churches, you're not, you are following an unbiblical method of missions. Now, NAM, I, I affirm, IMB, I affirm, these are churches working together to send missionaries, but you see that th- there is no rogue missionary. They are affirmed and sent by churches biblically. If you're considering being a missionary, but you love worldly comfort and you're not willing to die, you have not been called to missions. If God doesn't provide for you through the saints to go, you've not been called, at least at the moment, to missions. And God may provide that later. So these are things to chew on and think about. Leaving behind earthly comfort, willing to die, a desire to reach unreached people groups. If you have family, your family is also called. Right? If you have a spouse, your spouse is also called uh, to the mission field. God's not going to call you, Mike, and not Ellen. Right? That's not, that's not the way it's going to happen because you're one flesh now, biblically. If you've got a church supporting you, you, you have elders affirming your gifts, if you can teach, and if people are providing for those needs. All right, what about pastors? How do you know if you're called to be a pastor? I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. How do you know if you're called to be a pastor? 
I'm giving highlights. If you guys have further questions on some of these things, I would highly encourage you to come talk to me because we're needing to go a little fast. In chapter 3, verse 1, qualifications for overseers or elders or pastors. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone what? Aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So once again, we see that the office of a pastor starts with a desire to be a pastor. Seems again like, duh. But there's a desire, a godly, a godly desire, a biblical desire, a hunger, a passion for people, a passion to care for people. And then there's a list of qualifications. And then there are abilities. And then there's the affirmation of other elders. And so uh, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this. If, if you desire to be a pastor, verse 2, you must be above reproach. If you're not above reproach, you can't be a pastor. You must be the husband of one wife. You want to be the husband of two wives? You can't be a pastor. You must be sober-minded. You don't want to be sober-minded, clear-headed? You can't be a pastor. You must be self-controlled. You must be respectable, hospitable. You must be able to teach. You can't teach. You don't want people coming in your home. You're not willing to take on those who are hurting. You can't be a pastor. You can't be a drunkard. You love drinking. You don't want to give it up. You want to get drunk every night. You can't be a pastor. You can't be violent, rather gentle. You can't be quarrelsome. You love to pick fights with people. Are you an instigator? You can't be a pastor. You're not a lover of money. Do you love money? Do you want to get rich? (laughs) You don't want to be a pastor. You must manage your own household well. You can't get a hold of your wife and your kids, keeping your children submissive. How do you suppose to be able to manage the household of God if you cannot manage your own household? You can't be a pastor. You must not be a recent convert. Why? Because you might become puffed up with conceit and fall into the snare or the condemnation of the devil. And you must be well thought of by outsiders so that you may not fall into disgrace and snare of the devil. Now, let me pause. Pastors at different times will struggle with these different things. Some of them. Some will struggle with all. And and some would call for disqualification, at least for a a time being. I believe in restoration and mercy. I'm I'm a great example of exactly that. This doesn't mean that pastors are perfect. But it means that they're repentant. They're being sanctified. And they are leaders by example. These are qualifications. So if you want to be a pastor, you must desire to be a pastor. Then you must meet these qualifications. And then there's abilities also in here. There's the spiritual gifts of hospitality. There's the spiritual gift of teaching. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you see that Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to these things. We've already talked about it. You want to be a pastor? In 1 Timothy 4, you see that Timothy was told... To hold fast to the calling to which he's been called. And he specifically the gift that he has been given when the prophecy of elders came and they laid their hands on Timothy. So you see in 1 Timothy 4, you want to be a pastor? Other pastors are affirming your gifts. You've got godly counsel of people saying, this man meets the qualifications, has the desire, has the abilities. I would say that if you have a desire to preach or to be in full-time ministry as a pastor, don't be quick to ignore this desire. Study 1 Timothy chapter 3. Study Titus. See if you qualify. If you don't, though, don't automatically think you're not. Start working towards those qualifications with godly men. If you're seeking whether or not you should be a pastor, reach out to your pastors and your elders. Ask for wisdom. Ask for counsel. Ask for feedback. Ask to come and sit in part of the elders' meeting. You should look for opportunities to teach or preach and be tested. 
And, and I, want, I want to say one final thing about the passage, then we'll move to the final part, which is the saints. Sometimes men are discouraged, and the office of a pastor is a, is a male, biblically, okay? Um, I don't mean to ruffle feathers. This is not the topic of tonight. But biblical qualifications for uh, being a pastor is not a woman's office. That's not a sexist thing by any stretch of the imagination. Do I believe biblically that churches that have female pastors are sinful in that and are an error? I do. I do. And I don't mean that in a harsh way. If you have a discussion or a question about that, you can talk to me later. That offends some people sometimes because people grow up in churches that might have female pastors. Some people have family that have been female pastors. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be biblically. I can talk about that at a different time. But what I would say to men, you men who may, women can be missionaries all day. All right? They can be saints all day. Now, if, if you are considering being a pastor and you're male, sometimes many people speak and say, oh, well, you know, if you can do anything else, do it. <laughs> because being a pastor is hard. And you, you can talk to my wife and she knows what it's like to be a pastor's wife and what the home of a pastor looks like and the busyness and the burdens and all of that, right? And so if you think about it, you got a spouse, maybe have that conversation as well. The spouse we call as well. But I think that men are far too discouraged from becoming pastors or missionaries because people just kind of dismiss it or they say it's going to be hard or they just think, well, uh, you know, you, you just are unhappy with your job. Uh, you're, just, you're not seeing worth in your job. And I don't necessarily think that that's always the case. It could be the case sometimes. But if you have a desire, that's the first step in knowing maybe God is calling you to that ministry. And you ought to pursue that desire and then seek instead of the scriptures and seek godly counsel in men as to whether or not God is calling you. So don't be quick to dismiss the desire. Finally, we're going to end here tonight and I'm not going to get to my final point. That's fine. What about the saints? What about the saints? How do I know if I'm called here? And specifically here where I'm called? What kind of job? There tends to be two major moments in a person's life where questions of vocation are heavy. As a young person in college, right, or post-college or pre-college, where you're determining what to do with your life, you're trying to figure out, and, and there's expenses, you know, you're investing in college and all types of stuff, so you want to make wise decisions. Or midlife, when people may be wondering if what they do matters and if they're wasting their days. I want to give a plug here that if um, you struggle with the latter part, uh, you should go back and listen to last week's message. But Romans 12, Ephesians 4, we all have different gifts. We ought not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. God gives us gifts. And the Bible doesn't necessarily give us a blueprint of figuring out what we're supposed to do specifically with our work. But the Bible gives us incredible insight to know how to make a godly decision in line with God's will. First, I want you to think about the fact that you were made in the image of God. And you were made in the image of God to work. Women as well. Although your, rule, your roles biblically may look differently. That's for another week. God created each of you to work. He knew you before you were born. Every one of your days were numbered before there was yet one of them. God desires that you live according to his will. So think about this. God made no mistake when he created you with your specific gifts and your specific abilities. Because God was indeed the one who created you. There's not a mistake there. God created you to bear fruit and be effective and equipped to fulfill his calling on your life. So one of the first things you should ask yourself when wondering 
what am I supposed to do is, where are you gifted? And next, you should ask yourself, what are your desires? And th- I use the word desires again because God has given you desires, and not all desires are, are uh, uh, invalid, just like not all desires are valid. We must be submissive to what the Bible teaches about desires, but we should not discount desires. I mean, look, at we, we began the calling of a pastor and a missionary by saying, if you have the desire... So why would we then not with saints go if you have the desire? If God is giving a pastor desire and a mission desire, he's surely going to give a saint a desire. He hasn't made these men and women to all of a sudden be thrilled and these ones to be miserable. Look at the calling of a pastor and a missionary. A desire is necessary. Now, you also must have the ability to back up the desire. Remember 1 Timothy 3 says, if you aspire to the office of overseer, and then it gives a list of qualifications and abilities. So just because you have a desire for something doesn't necessarily mean that you are called to it if you don't have the gifts and abilities. Many people have the desire to be a professional athlete, but no ability. I, I, I bet that, Josh, you would love to be a lineman for, which team are you, the Dolphins? Which professional football team? Okay, we'll go, we'll go Florida Gators. All right? Quarterback, maybe? You want to be? Do you, have the, do you have the desire to maybe have that position, that kind of fame? Well, I'm sure. Did you have the ability to do it? You're not Tim Tebow? Okay. So, therefore, he probably has to look in the mirror and say, I'm probably not going to be a quarterback for the Florida Gators. But that, uh, that doesn't mean that all desires are bad. Many people have the desire to be things that they cannot be. And I will say this. um, Along the same lines, you should ask yourself what motivates you. Because God expects us to work a certain way, to be diligent. So we should seek for opportunities to be motivated. Ultimately, God is our motivator. Sometimes we're called to seasons of affliction and suffering. Remember what happened to work post-fall, right? It became tough. But motivation should be addressed. Then you should look to the counsel of godly men and women, just like pastors and missionaries. Sometimes we can be delusional about ourselves and think that, think that we have gifts that maybe we don't have. Other people can sometimes see more clearly our gifts or our abilities or even our shortcomings. There's caution here because others can be wrong. This has happened throughout all of Scripture. But the Bible does teach that we should seek godly counsel. You should also look at opportunities that are available in your life right now. Remember, we live in seasons. God created seasons. He moves in our life in seasons. Jesus himself lived in different seasons. He was a student, then he was a carpenter, and then a teacher, and a healer, and a savior. I was a student, and then I worked at a gas station, cleaning pumps and stocking fridges for a season. And then I traveled with a singing group for a season, and now I'm a pastor, and hopefully that season will be forever, right? But there's seasons there. Don't, don't, because a door hasn't opened for something that you desire and have the abilities for, doesn't mean that God won't call you to that someday. You might just be in a season. Pay attention to the doors that are open for you today and seek God for counsel on what doors to go through. And finally, I, I want to say this, and I'll close here. Oftentimes, in the realm of saints, we can become dissatisfied in our lives, specifically in line with our jobs. Our jobs can come from us. We can be dissatisfied because we're not being faithful oftentimes in our primary vocation of being a child of God. If you're dissatisfied in your life or your job right now, I want you to look at your life and see how often you are in God's word. I mean, 
For all of you tonight who might say, I'm dissatisfied with my job. I'm dissatisfied in life. Before you're quick to make this a vocational issue, I want you to pause, reflect in your life, and ask yourself, how much time are you spending with the Lord? Are you praying without ceasing? Are you exhorting and encouraging other believers? Are you using your gifts in the congregation? Do you worship the Lord constantly? If not, no duh, you're dissatisfied. Typically, when we're dissatisfied at work or at home or in life, it's because we fail to be diligent to our primary vocation, a holy, set-apart child of God. Satisfaction comes from people who are dwelling and abiding with God in this sphere. If this is intact, as well as your home, and you're still dissatisfied or struggling, then you need to ask if your job is allowing you to be a faithful child of God, if it's allowing you to be a faithful spouse, spouse, a faithful parent or child, or a faithful saint. If your job keeps you from being faithful in your primary vocations, you need a new job. I'm going to say that again. I believe that. Some people may disagree. That's fine. If you are in a job, in a place where you're dissatisfied, but you are seeking to be a child of God, you're seeking to be a godly person in your home, you're spending time with the Lord, but your job keeps you from being effective and successful in these realms, you need a new job. And here's why. God did not call you to be successful at a job that keeps you from being successful as a child of God. It's not happening. And sometimes we have the wrong mentality of, I've got to do this right to be able to happy here. And the Bible says, you've got to get this right to be happy here. I don't have time tonight to discuss a biblical understanding of rest. I will find time this year to discuss that. If any of you have questions, I briefed over some things. I told you in the beginning, the very first week, that sometimes people may have different opinions. I'm not infallible. I'm fallible. If you've got verses and scriptures and passages that you think apply to tonight, that you think would be helpful and beneficial and fruitful, talk to me. We can post it in a realm. We can discuss it later. If you have further questions about these different areas, talk to me. This concludes our biblical worldview on work. I hope that you view work and your life as a saint um, or potentially as a pastor or missionary differently. Hope you can glorify God. Here's my biggest prayer in our work. Are you ready? Primary things are primary. Number one, have to be. Number two, that just like God, every single day, you can work or create in such a way, Psalm 90, that God's work and glorious power is revealed through you in your hands. Then at the end of the day, you reflect upon your work, you affirm your work, and then you can rest. That's what a great worldview for work. We're not having small groups tonight. Thank you for being patient, patient with my length. Let me pray and you'll be dismissed.